Thanks for that great song. That's, that's terrific. When I finish, there'll be some more great music uh, that I'm looking forward to. Some housekeeping chores. First of all, I owe some of you an apology. I had appointments yesterday with at least four of you, and other duties interfered with that, and I was unable to meet that appoint those appointments, and we were not able to reach you in advance, and I apologize for that. I'll tell you, when Dave Maddox saw the names of the students that I couldn't meet with, he said, wow, those are the brightest and the most spiritual students in the whole student body. So I'm especially grieved that I, I couldn't meet such, such bright spiritual people yesterday. So forgive me for that. Another bit of housekeeping. Yesterday, a number of people came up to me, or Wednesday, after my message, and they said, wait a minute, we understand what you said about the law of non-contradiction and how Christians should be concerned about the laws of logic and so on, but don't some of our Christian beliefs violate or appear to violate the law of non-contradiction? And the particular issue that many students raised, and I want to credit you for recognizing that on your own, is the doctrine of the two natures of Christ. A number of students said, doesn't the fact that we believe that Jesus is both God and man somehow violate the law of non-contradiction? Well, it doesn't, all right? There's no contradiction there. But uh, there is, I don't have the time here to give you the philosophical techniques that you need to handle that. So let me direct you to a couple of things that you might want to read if some of you are a little troubled by that. There is a great article in the Asbury Theological Journal written by Thomas Morris. Tom Morris is a professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. Check out, I think it's the 1989 volume of Asbury Theological Journal and Tom Morris will give you the equipment that you need to deal with that. Or if you care to, you can wait until one of my new books comes out in the fall. It's called Worldviews in Conflict, and you can get some help from that. One final bit of housekeeping. Somebody has my overlays <laughs> from which the great slides that we're going to be using today were made. Please make sure I get those overlays before I get on the airplane, like in the next uh, 40 minutes or so. Okay. Here's what I'm going to talk about today. I want to talk about the missing link in most Christian worldviews. No, I'm not going to talk about evolution. I'm not going to talk about that missing link. When I talk about a missing link being present in most Christian worldviews, what I have in mind is the fact that most Christians eventually will get tuned into what they're supposed to believe about God and about science, the natural sciences, and all those other things. But the big gap that seems to remain in most Christians' worldviews concerns, are you ready for this? It concerns economics. It does. And what I want to do today is I want to talk to you about economics. But I want to warn you, this is not a popular subject. It's often called the dismal science. Let me begin with an apocryphal story about Albert Einstein and I have no, nothing to say about the theology of this story. Some of you may have heard what happened to Albert Einstein when he got to heaven. They told him his mansion wasn't ready and he'd have to room, he'd have to bunk up with, with three guys until his mansion was ready. So Albert Einstein walked into the, uh, into the shack and the first guy came up and sh put out his hand and shook hands with Albert Einstein and introduced himself and said, I have an IQ of 180. And Albert Einstein said, that's great. You and I can talk about the theory of relativity. And the other guy put out his hand and he said, I've got an IQ of 120. And Albert Einstein said, that's okay. We can talk about quantum physics. And the third guy put out his hand and he said, 
I've only got an IQ of 80, Dr. Einstein. And Einstein looked at him and he said, well, that's okay. Tell me, what's going to happen to interest rates this next year? Oh. oh, you know what? I almost forgot. There was a fourth guy in the room. He was hiding in the dark in a corner. And he came up and he was the most sheepish of all. He said, Dr. Einstein, a lot of people around here don't think I'm very intelligent. And they don't think I have a particularly high moral character either. And Einstein said, that's okay. How many years did you serve in the U.S. Congress? Uh, ooh. A number of years ago, I wrote a book called Social Justice in the Christian Church. And I began that book by talking about the two faces of Christian social concern. And I mention that because this is why it's important for Christians to get some grounding in, some, in, in the kinds of economic things I'm going to talk about today. There are two faces of Christian social concern. The first face of Christian social concern says, and it's true, that Christians ought to care about poor and oppressed people. Christians ought to have compassion. They ought to be concerned about helping poor people and needy people and oppressed people around the world. Not just in the United States, but in Latin America and in Eastern Europe and around the world. But now comes the, now comes the catch, you see. It's not enough that we care about helping the poor. We must understand, we must have a proper grounding in sound economic thinking and in sound social theory before we set out to help the poor. Why, some people might ask. Well, the answer is both simple and important. If we try to help the poor on the basis of unsound social thinking and on the basis of bad economic thinking, we risk making the plight of the poor even worse than it is now. In fact, I'll be very frank, that is one reason and perhaps the major reason why the poor in America are worse off today than they were 20 to 30 years ago. You see, for the last 30 years in this country, we've had a number of great society programs, a number of welfare programs that certainly, or at least appear to be based on compassion for the poor. The catch is that those policies and those programs were based on bad economics. And so now, today, after spending a trillion dollars of taxpayers' money to eliminate poverty in this country, we've only made the plight of the poor worse. We've only, made, uh, we've only created more poor people. There's another reason why the study of economics is important. Running around the country these days is a small army of Christian left-wingers who, first of all, want to make every Christian in the world feel guilty about poverty. They want to stir up our emotions about the problem of poverty, but then they very subtly want us to believe that if we really care about the poor, we're somehow going to become political and economic liberals. There's something sinful these people want you to believe about voting for conservative political candidates. Because it is only when you become a left-winger that you really demonstrate how much you care about the poor and how much you love Jesus. I will not, uh, I will not give you the names of some of those people today, but they're often connected with organizations called Evangelicals for Social Action, 
Tony Campolo. Oh, I didn't mean to mention Tony. Tony is Tony, a good friend of mine, is one of the people who does this. Ron Sider, uh, Tom Sign. These are people who want you to feel guilty that there are poor people in this country, and then they want to twist that guilt so as to make you think that if you really love Jesus, you're going to become a flaming liberal. The truth is, the truth is, if you really want to hurt these people, you'll become a flaming liberal. Because the liberalism does not help the poor. Well, let's have our first slide. And let's start talking about the difference between capitalism and socialism. There it is. What a great slide. What tremendous technology. Notice, first of all, the horizontal line upon which my little diagram is based. That line is going to represent a continuum, a graded scale, so that we have on one side the arbitrary number of zero and on the other side the number 100. That's going to indicate to you that we have a variety of options along this line. The next thing I want you to notice is that there are the names of three economic positions on that chart. On the one end, we have the word socialism. On the other end, we have the word capitalism. But please notice that there is a third economic system up there. And it goes by two names. Sometimes it's called, and this is the name that liberals prefer, sometimes it's called the mixed economy. The reason for that name is because this third position is supposed to be a combination, a mixture of the best elements of capitalism and socialism. Friends, that won't cut it. There are no good elements of socialism to mix into anything, all right? But that's what it's called, the mixed economy. The name that I prefer for this third position is interventionism. The reason for that name is this. It is an economic system in which liberals believe that the government should intervene with a free market economy whenever it is necessary to achieve the goals of the liberals. So the interventionism refers to government interference government intervention with, the, with, with a market economy. Now notice the next feature of our little chart. We have these little doohickeys, brackets, I guess we could call them. Now what those brackets indicate is that these names, capitalism, socialism, interventionism, are really umbrella terms. There is no one fixed, settled form of socialism. There is no single kind of interventionism or capitalism. These words refer to a variety of options in the real world. There are degrees of socialism. There are degrees of interventionism. There are degrees of capitalism. All right? Then notice next that these brackets overlap at certain points. What that means is that as you move along this scale, you can sometimes be talking about a national economy that some people would describe as socialist and other people would describe as interventionist. There are gray areas where it's difficult to know whether this particular country is best described as socialist or is best described as interventionist. Okay. One other fact here before we start zeroing in on these particular economic systems. Because there is this third economic system out there, 
it is vitally important to recognize that the struggle between the left and the right, between liberalism and conservatism, is not just a struggle between socialists and capitalists. There is this third system that keeps muddying things up. You want to know what else? The economy of the United States is not capitalist. Now, when people complain about the American economy, and we all have plenty of reasons to complain, don't let them deceive you into thinking that the follies and the blunders and the mistakes of the American economy are somehow the fault of capitalism. The United States economy is actually a form of interventionism. It is a mixed economy. I readily acknowledge that there are all kinds of problems with the American economy. Look at the mess we're going through right now. But let me, let me show you the clever trick that liberals use when they start talking about the economy. The miscues of the American economy right now are the fault of interventionist policies, governmental interference through taxation, through tariffs, through uh, manipulation of the money supply through all kinds of mechanisms. The problems of the American economy right now have been caused by prior governmental intervention with the economy. You want to know what the liberals would like us to do, what they would like us to empower them to do? They would like the power to impose even more intervention upon the American economy. They would like to use the problems that result from prior governmental intervention to justify a movement in the direction of socialism. Keep that in mind. When Tony Campolo or Ronald Sider or the Sojourners magazine condemns capitalism, what they're trying to do is give government greater power over the economy when, in fact, it is governmental intervention with the economy that has brought us to our present crises. Keep that in mind. Now, what is socialism? All right. Well, the best way to understand socialism is to think of it as a, in terms of a triangle. Because socialism is really a command economy. It is an economic system in which a small group of people at the peak of the triangle seek to exercise total economic control over every other aspect of the economy. It is a command economy in which a small number of people at the top issue commands to everybody else. Capitalism, a system that I'll define more adequately in a few minutes, is the opposite of that. It is not a command economy. It is an, it is an, an economic system that allows free markets to operate, that allows people to make free economic choices. What is the major difference between the, among these three systems? Well, here's a, the major difference between socialism, capitalism, and interventionism is the degree of economic freedom that the people in these systems are allowed to have. That's the key. Under socialism, you have the least amount of economic freedom. Under capitalism, you have the greatest amount of economic freedom. Generally speaking, as you move from the number 100 to the number zero, individual people have more free choice with what they will do with their own property. 
National economies often move greatly from uh, along this continuum. Let me give you an example from communist China. In the mid-1970s, communist China was about as close to the number 100 on our chart as you could get. Complete uh, control over the Chinese economy by the Chinese mafia that occupied the top of the, uh, the sphere. And don't get offended by the word Chinese mafia. All I'm trying to indicate is that under a socialist system, the people who run that system are a great deal like gangsters. And certainly under a communist system, they are in fact gangsters. All right? Now, in the mid-1970s, communist China could not feed its own people. It had to export food from outside of its national boundaries. So you want to know what the Chinese mafia did? They began, to, and of course they continued to call their system communism. They, con they began to introduce subtle, slight economic incentives into their system. They began to introduce markets into communist China. They began to introduce capitalist incentives into agriculture in China. And in ten short years, listen to me, by doing nothing more, what, what they did was they moved from the number 100 to, say, the number 90, the number 80, somewhere in a less restrained socialist system, Within ten short years, communist China was producing enough food to feed its own people. The movement away from that extreme socialism to a more moderate form of socialism was enough to increase its agricultural productivity. In fact, communist China was, was exporting food to other nations. But then the Chinese mafia forgot something very important. Listen to me. They forgot that once people get a taste of freedom, they want more freedom. You give an enslaved people a taste of freedom and they want more. I hope some of you, I hope none of you will ever forget the vision of those brave Chinese students in Tiananmen Square in 1989 who, who built their own model of the Statue of Liberty. What happened in China in 18, 1989 was simply this. Those Chinese gangsters had given their people a taste of freedom, of economic freedom, and now they wanted political freedom as well. They wanted democracy. And that's when the leaders of China made a decision. Do we relinquish our special privileged position? Do we allow this country to move to democracy or do we squash this revolution? And you know what happened. They sent the army and they sent the tanks into Tiananmen Square. And at that point, communist China made a U-turn and headed back towards the most extreme kind of totalitarianism in their country. They decided that they would no longer lead their people into thinking that democracy was possible. Now, in Russia, the Soviet Union, of course, we have a different story for which we can thank God. Gorbachev, who incidentally had no idea what he was doing, all right? Gorbachev, as you know, got the Nobel Peace Prize for the consequences of certain things that he allowed to happen. Do you want to know who the Russian people think really deserved that Nobel Peace Prize? 
They hate Gorbachev. Russian people who know what happened then are, are happy to tell Americans that the person in the world who deserved that Nobel Peace Prize was not Gorbachev, it was Ronald Reagan. It was Reagan who finally pushed Russia to make those concessions that finally made the coup of last year possible and led to the breakdown of communism in the Soviet Union. What we're beginning to see now in the nations of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union is a movement not only to greater economic freedom. Communism is a failure. But it is a movement towards greater political freedom that we must do everything we can to help encourage and strengthen. Now, I must hurry along here. Let's put on our second slide. Then we'll return to this in a moment. Let me tell you what capitalism is, all right? I'm not going to have the time to tell you everything that I would like about socialism and interventionism. Your library has a copy of my book called Poverty and Wealth. Uh, take it out and, and see if you can uh, see what you can learn from that to get further information about capitalism and interventionism. But now let's, let's find out what capitalism really is. There it is. There's a definition. Capitalism is a system of voluntary relations within, within a framework of laws within which people... Well, why don't I read it? <laughs> why don't I read it? There it is behind me and I'm stumbling along here. Capitalism is a system of voluntary relations in which people exchange freely within a framework of laws that prohibit acts of force, fraud, and theft. Notice one thing, first of all, about my definition of capitalism. Capitalism is not a system that says people can do anything they want. That's what enemies of capitalism would like you to believe. There are restraints within a capitalist system. And those restraints include these laws. See if they're familiar, all right? One constraint of a genuinely capitalist system says, Thou shalt not steal. That's right. Because when you steal from somebody else, you're destroying the freedom of their, of their relationship. A second law that operates within capitalist uh, constraints is, Thou shalt not lie. There must be laws within a capitalist system that prohibit people from stealing from other people, from lying to other people, from defrauding other people, from breaking contracts. Now, put back the other slide. I have a friend. His name is Walter Williams. He is an economist who teaches at James Mason University near Washington, D.C. He is not only an economist, he's a black economist. He grew up in the ghetto of the city of Philadelphia. Walter Williams is not only a black economist, he is a conservative economist, which always drives liberals nuts, all right? Liberals can understand how white people can become conservatives, but they can't understand how black people can become conservatives. The answer is simple. Black people can think. They can reason. Now, Walter Williams has made a distinction that I think really nails down the difference between capitalism and socialism. Here it is. Walter Williams distinguishes between the peaceful means of exchange and the violent means of exchange. These are the only two ways in which exchange can occur, peacefully or violently. 
The peaceful means of exchange can be summed up in this expression. If you do something good for me, then I will do something good for you. Now, whenever two people exchange money or goods freely, that's the basis of that free exchange. If you do something good for me, I'll do something good for you. When you walk into McDonald's and plunk down your three or four dollars and say, if, and say, give me a quarter pound of fries and a Coke, please, what you could really be saying is, if you do something good for me, give me the food that I want, then I'll do something good for you. I'll give you the money that you want. Now, the second means of exchange, Walter Williams says, is the violent means of exchange. That can be summed up in this expression. Unless you do something good for me, I'm going to do something bad to you. Now, that's the way thieves and crooks operate. If you ever get robbed or mugged, the thief can stick a gun in your face and say, give me your money or your life. But what he's really saying is, unless you do something good for me, give me your money, I'm going to do something bad to you. That's the way thieves operate. That's also the way the Internal Revenue Service operates. Try it sometime, all right? The IRS doesn't say, please give us a contribution. It says, unless you do something good for your government, the state, your government's going to hurt you real bad. Now, the violent, listen to me, the violent means of exchange epitomizes socialism. The violent means of exchange is what socialism is all about. It is a system of coercion, of threat, of force. Hey, you say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When I hear Christian socialists talk, when I listen to Tom, when I read Tom Sign, for example, in his Mustard Seed Conspiracy or his new book, Wild Hope, Tom Sign wants me to think that there is a kind of voluntary socialism that's out there. Listen to me. Voluntary socialism is a contradiction in terms. You cannot have socialism and free choice. Socialism is inseparable from force and from violence and from theft. If you want the full details, check out my book. Now, the peaceful means of exchange epitomizes what capitalism is all about. It really is. What is capitalism? It's an economic system in which people should be free to operate on this principle. If you do something good for me, then I will do something good for you. Ah, but now the left comes along and they give us many objections to capitalism. I'll just give you two. Here are two of the most frequently heard complaints about capitalism. And both complaints are based upon a misunderstanding. Complaint number one, from the, straight from the religious left. Christians should reject capitalism, the religious left says, because it is an economic system that leads to exploitation. Capitalism is an economic system in which some people win at the expense of other people who lose. Now, let me give you the answer to that whole fallacious argument. That argument confuses what we call a positive-sum game 
from a zero-sum game. Sorry to get technical here. It confuses the difference between a zero-sum game and a positive-sum game. A zero-sum game is a game in which only one side can win. Baseball is a zero-sum game. If one team wins, the other team loses. And believe me, because I'm a Cleveland Indians fan, I know what it's like to go to a zero-sum game where the Indians are playing, all right? Basketball is a zero-sum game. If the Mustangs win, then those poor Missouri Baptists lose. That's a zero-sum game. Now, what the religious left wants you to think is that economic exchanges are a zero-sum game. That if McDonald's gets your money, they're the winner, and you walk away the loser. The landowner to whom you pay rent is the winner, and you walk away the loser. Oh, come on. Listen to me. Capitalist exchanges are a positive-sum game. What that means is that when two people freely enter into an exchange, both walk away as winners. When you walk out of McDonald's with your stomach full, and we won't talk about what's in your stomach or what it's doing to your system, all right? But when you walk out of McDonald's with your stomach full, you got what you wanted. That food meant more to you than the money that you left behind. And so the owner of McDonald's won, and you won. When you pay rent, or when you buy a car, or when you buy a baseball ticket, both parties can walk away as winners. Don't buy this liberal nonsense that every time you exchange your money for something else, the other guy's the winner and you're the loser. Here's the second objection to capitalism. The religious left says Christians should reject capitalism because it encourages greed. Oh, it encourages greed. That's false. Here's the truth with respect to that issue. Capitalism, properly understood, does not encourage greed, friends. It neutralizes greed. Put that word down on your piece of paper. It neutralizes greed. Let's imagine somewhere up Placerita Canyon here, there is the greediest guy in all of California. He would be some character, wouldn't he? The greediest guy. And let's say this guy lusts after the money of, of uh, master's college students. When this guy goes to bed at... Yeah, all of the money that you kids have, see? All of the money. Well, he can't lust after the money of your teachers because they clearly don't have any, all right? I'll take some applause from the faculty here. When this guy goes to sleep at night, he doesn't count sheep. He counts dollar bills floating from your pocket to his bank account. This guy is greedy. Now, here's the question. If this man operates under the constraints of a properly defined capitalism What's the only way he can get his grubby hands on your money? The answer is this. He's got to find some way of serving you. He's got to find some way of offering you a good or a service that you want more than your money. He might have to open up a laundromat because college students get dirty clothes. 
Or he might have to open up a restaurant because college students get hungry. Or he might, you know, he's got to find some way of serving you before he can get his grubby hands on your money. That's in a capitalist system. He's got to operate on the principle, if you do something good for me, I will do something good for you. But let me tell you how Joe Scrooge can operate under an interventionist system. There the rules of the game change. Under an interventionist system, what Joe Scrooge does is find some politician. And he greases the palm of that politician such that he gets a monopoly on the use of some particular good or service in this valley. Maybe he will get, maybe he will get the politicians to pass a law that only Joe Scrooge can run laundromats. Only Joe Scrooge can deliver milk. Of course, that's the way it operates under a statist system, under an interventionist system. Of course, under a socialist system, what Joe Scrooge will do is become a high-ranking member of the party that controls the country. And then the rest of us get stabbed in the back and stabbed in the pocketbook as the whole system conspires against us. Now, what I'm telling you then is this. These enemies of capitalism who want to make you feel guilty that you're a conservative or who want you to feel guilty because you support capitalism, they are knowingly misrepresenting what capitalism is. And they're trying to play upon the confusion that we all have between capitalism and interventionism. Next point. Obviously, the kind of capitalism I've been describing is a kind of ideal where, you might ask, in the real world, do genuinely capitalist nations operate? Well, I'm going to give you the answer to that. It's kind of hard to find any genuine examples of capitalism in the real world. And there's an answer, a theological answer for that. Here's why. The closer a country moves to true capitalism, the less guaranteed security business people have in that country. And you've got to understand business people, and I don't care whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Lots of business people want guaranteed security. They don't like risk. And what happens then is this. As business people realize that the more we move away from governmental controls over the economy, the more we move closer to a genuine capitalist system the more risk they're going to find in their lives, that's when we find business people hedging their bets. You see, what I'm saying is, the real hindrance towards any national economy continuing to move in the direction of free markets, the real opposition comes from sin. Human beings try to hedge their bets, and the way they hedge their bets is by getting government on their side. And the way they get government on their side is to bribe the politicians, either through campaign do donations or through other favors, giving them free trips to Hawaii or other countries. So there is a built-in resistance to any greater move towards capitalism that, that finds its root in fallen human nature. But even at that, are there any countries in the world that are better examples of capitalism today than the United States or Canada or Western Europe? 
You bet. And here they are. They are the nations of Southeast Asia. Taiwan, South Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, the crown colony of Hong Kong, Singapore. These nations have less governmental interference with their economic affairs than any other nations in the world today. And you want to know what else? These nations have demonstrated the highest rates of economic growth in the world. Now, some people say, why should I as a Christian care about economic growth in a country? Now, wait a minute. You, I'm, I won't be talking to you. I'll be talking to the religious left. Wait a minute, you hypocrites. You're the guys who keep telling us how much you care about helping the poor. You cannot help the poor in third world countries until these third world countries begin to produce some wealth. Don't complain about economic growth when, it, when out of the other side of your mouth you talk about helping the poor. That's, that's an essential step in helping the poor. I am not suggesting that the nations of Southeast Asia are, are perfect. I'm not suggesting there still aren't large pockets of poverty in the nations of Latin America, uh, in the nations of Southeast Asia. What I am saying is there has been unbelievable improvement in the economic affairs of those nations, and it is a direct consequence of their choosing freedom over interventionism. Now, I'll tell you something else about those nations of Southeast Asia. They, have ex they experience these enormous, these remarkable rates of economic growth without any natural resources. These countries, by and large, have no, no fertile soil. They have no deposits of natural resources, no oil, no gold, no silver, no copper. All they have is human determination and entrepreneurial ability plus a government that leaves them free to behave according to the principles of the voluntary method of exchange. Now, there is a group of people running around the world today that we call liberation theologians. These are people who got their start in Latin America. These are people who want us to think that if we really care about the poor of Latin America, we will repudiate capitalism and we will all become socialists. We will, in fact, support violent revolutions in Latin America to help produce revolutions. Listen, Latin America has never been capitalist. There is no capitalism in Latin America to have a revolution over. The economic systems of Latin America have been, from the time the first Spaniards set foot on that soil, the economic systems of Latin America have been interventionist. There's no capitalism to overthrow in Latin America. What capitalism, what, what Latin America needs is a series of capitalist revolutions that will kick the statists and the interventionists and the left-wingers out and allow the poor people of Latin America to experience the same economic productivity that the poor people of Southeast Asia have experienced. But you want to know something else about Latin America? There you have probably the wealthiest part of the whole world. Southeast Asia has experienced incredible economic growth without access to natural wealth. Latin America is full of natural wealth, fertile soil, abundant rainfall. 
natural, uh, uh, rich in natural resources, mineral deposits. The reason why Latin America is still poor today is because of the stupidity and the corruption of the political leaders of Latin America, who are not capitalists. You understand me? Okay. Now, some people, of course, and we could call them super pietists, will say, should we really have taken up a precious chapel period at Master's College to talk about capitalism and socialism, to talk about the production of wealth, to talk about means of exchange? Yes, we should have. Because every one of us, if we are going to be committed Christians and serving Christians, every one of us should be involved with the condition and the plight of the poor around the world. And so help me, if you set out to help the poor and you set out to do it on the basis of one of these faulty economic systems, God help the poor that you try to help because you're going to make their lives worse. What we need to do is say a resounding no to the religious left. What we need to say to the religious left is you guys do your economic homework and stop trying to turn the rest of us into little left-wingers. You find out why your left-wing policies don't work. So I think it's important. Now, maybe you don't intend to take any economics before you graduate from here. Maybe you don't intend to think about economics or study economics. Well, I'm sorry if that's the case, because there's going to continue then to be a missing link in your worldview. And your ministry, I think, will suffer, and those poor people that you have an opportunity to help are going to suffer as well. And many of you are going to end up voting for the, for the wrong candidates. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we live in a world in which millions of people are suffering. They don't have the basic necessities of life. They don't have food. They don't have clothing. They don't have clean water. And our Father, if we care about the poor, as your word tells us we should, we must become informed about the means by which we seek to help these people. Our Father, alert us to the importance of getting clear on our thinking about this important matter of, of, of economics. Help us to get clear in our thinking about the differences between capitalism and socialism. Because only as we do this, our Father, will we be in a position to help the poor who even now are crying for our help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we've got some great music.